Please open your Bibles to John chapter 1. As I was working through the passage this week, I was trying to think of a way to help give us a frame of reference for what's going on here in John's Gospel, specifically as it relates to John the Baptist and his role and his function and what folks' response to him was like. And here's the silly little way that I came up with to do that. Some of you are probably big fans of movie franchises, right? These, these movies that have lots and lots of different episodes that they just come out with sequel after sequel after sequel. Um, Star Trek, uh, James Bond, right? Um, and, and all types of genres have their own franchises. Friday the 13th, right? Uh, Fast and the Furious, 12 or 13 by now, I guess. Um, the modern classic would have to be Star Wars. Okay? And so if you're a fan of any of these series, you know that the announcement of another one coming gets everybody all excited. There's such a buzz around it. Uh, there's build-up. <clears throat> I think back to 1999, when it had been 16 years since the last Star Wars movie, and Episode One is coming out. What a big deal that was, right? And that's the case. If you're really into this thing, you, you circle the date on the calendar, you look forward to it, you buy your tickets in advance, maybe even go to one of those crazy midnight showings on, on release day. But imagine, if you will, that type of excitement, that type of buildup for whatever your favorite movie franchise is, another one's coming out, and you've done all those things, marked it on the calendar, bought your tickets, the day's finally there, you're in the theater, and the previews are playing, and the last preview comes to a close. The production house logo comes up for your movie, and you let out a big yawn, and you get up and you walk out. That's absurd, right? That would be kind of silly to do. And yet I think that's similar to what we're finding here in John's Gospel. Palestine in the first century was bubbling over with expectation about the coming Messiah. The buzz was incredible. Everybody was watching and waiting and wondering. Any new person comes, could it be him? Could, what, any, any strange event that happens? What does this mean? Does this mean something? Right? overflowing with expectation. And the way that John writes his gospel, he helps build us up with that expectation, right? This, this cosmic prologue that we've seen, introducing us to the Word, right? Who eternally existed with God because he was God, and now he's taking on flesh, and he's coming to us, and he builds all that up only to let us be let down purposely, I think, with a yawn, right? Once John the Baptist and once Jesus take the stage, we were warned about it. He, he, he told us already in the pro prologue, rejection's coming, but to see it unfold strikes me about as odd 
as waiting for that long-anticipated new release of your favorite series to come out, only to walk out even as it's starting. We're going to look at 10 verses this morning. They're about John the Baptist. They're about Jesus' herald, right? His forerunner, the one who was announcing his coming. And as we see what unfolds, I want you to keep in mind the absurdity of my silly little example of eagerly awaiting it and walking out right as it starts. So I want you to stand if you're able. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. These are the very words of God. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we pray this morning because we need your help. Uh, And Father, we would also take a moment at this time to uh, lift up a church in the northern suburbs of Boston, uh, where our brother Sean is even now preaching his very first sermon in their official gathered worship service at Boston North Presbyterian. Uh, And they need to hear from you like we need to hear from you. They need for you to get their pastor out of the way, just like you need to get me out of the way. That your word, that your glorious and beautiful gospel would come through with crystal clear clarity. That we'd see Christ as he's offered in the gospel, that your Holy Spirit would be at work, enabling us to embrace him as he's freely offered. Would you come now in power in little old Orangeburg and in great big Boston? And would you exalt the Lord Jesus? Would you draw men and women to yourself all for your glory? We do pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, at first glance... In these verses, based on these questions about who John the Baptist is, we might think that the Jews here are really riled up about and they're really interested in John the Baptist as a person and who this mysterious figure was. But deeper into our passage, verse 25 to be exact, we see and realize that what they're really concerned about 
is what John the Baptist is doing. He's baptizing. And their concerns about his baptizing relates to three things. Where he's baptizing, who he's baptizing, and ultimately the fact that they just do not understand why he's baptizing. I want to unpack each of those, and with each one, there's a takeaway. There's something that I really want to sink in for you, and for you literally to take away and ponder on an essential truth that we need to come away from with each point. There's a worship, uh, in your worship folder, there's an outline, and those takeaways each have a fill in the blank. So the first question concerns where John the Baptist is baptizing, and the takeaway here is that religious activity won't save you. Religious activity won't save you. Look at verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. So, when John the Baptist comes, we rightfully think about him revealing to us who Jesus is. But he also reveals some other things, too. He points out some problems. He helps expose some problems. One of the commentators I read this week put it this way. He said, things are not quite right in Jerusalem. There's corruption in the religious establishment. And for John the Baptist to come to the wilderness has to rub the religious leaders the wrong way a bit. That this new religious upstart comes on the scene, but he thumbs his nose at Jerusalem and sets up shop out yonder? What kind of a nobody would do that? Right? Anybody who knows anything about religion in Palestine knows that Jerusalem, that's where everything happens. That's where the important people are. That's where all the religious activity has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. God. Now, it's interesting to me that the other Gospels don't include this account of John the Baptist's interrogation. John's the one who points out what the Jews have done here with all these questions, and it fits with what John's going to show us later in his Gospel. Right, how the Jews, for the most part, by and large, the Jews didn't understand Jesus, were actively opposed to him, even to the point of plotting his death. And now, when that happens, it really ought not surprise the careful reader. Right? The one who's been reading through this and paying attention. Because here's another little clue in our passage today as to the deep, deep, deep problems that we've got going on. All this messianic expectation. And the whole place is a buzz. And now there's some activity happening. Somebody's come on the scene. Could, could this be? Do you think? And while they are curious, they're only curious enough to send some other folks to go check this out. They're not interested enough to get off their rear ends and actually go inquire for themselves. If, if they were desperately awaiting and seeking for the Messiah, one thinks they might have gotten up and run to see who this was. 
run to find out what all this is about. Could, could this really be? After all this time, could this be it? But instead, their lives revolved around their established, comfortable, familiar religious activity. John the Baptist came to herald the coming of Messiah. He came to the wilderness to send a shot across the bow of the ship of religious observance and activity. It will not save you. The religious status quo, everything that you know and understand, is about to be turned on its head. Religious activity will not save you. That's part of why Messiah had to come. Right? So where John did his baptizing is part of the problem for the Jews. But also who he baptized was a problem. And the takeaway here is you've got to be changed on the inside. You've got to be changed on the inside. The Jews had a problem with who John was baptizing because he was baptizing Jews. And that was offensive. And we need to understand why. Baptism in that day, it was not unheard of. It's not like John came and did this newfangled thing like, what is this? No, it, it was not entirely foreign to them. There was a contemporary practice of baptism in that day. Um, look at verse 19. This interrogation delegation is comprised of priests and Levites. Now, these would have been experts in ritual purification. Right? Old Testament outlined several rites and observances, uh, various remedies for various states of uncleanness. And baptism in this day was often carried out when a Gentile converted to Judaism. Right? When someone who was not born as part of God's people decided to follow and worship the God of the Israelites. So, of course, there was circumcision involved. But many times, there was also a type of, of baptism, a ritual cleansing, if you will. Interestingly enough, it was self-administered. You, you did it to yourself. You poured or sprinkled water on yourself. And that made sense to the Jews. Right? That made perfect sense to the Jews because, of course, those dirty, godless, pagan outsiders, the Gentiles... Yes, they need a good cleansing before they'll be worthy of following our God. But where John the Baptist really ruffled their religious feathers was that he came baptizing all. Jew and Gentile alike, as if they both needed it. It's like John was ignoring the Jews' special status as God's chosen people. They were offended by John's demand that they be baptized. Now, the other Gospels go into more detail about John the Baptist's preaching and the message that he had, and, and they tell us that he was coming and not just saying, oh, you need to be baptized, but his big thing was you need to repent and be baptized. Right? Remember when he called him a brood of vipers? Right? He was not a shrinking violet by any means. His message was shocking. It was offensive to the Jews. And here's why. The Jews had an expectation of Messiah. 
but in no way did they sense their need for Messiah. You understand the difference? They knew one was coming. They had no idea what they needed from him. Now, one of the ways we see this is in their question in verse 21. They're trying desperately to figure out who this joker is. Are you Elijah? All right, now, why would they ask this? Well, Elijah is one of those characters in the Old Testament, if you know much about his story. Right? Anyone who, who doesn't die, but just gets swept up into heaven in a whirlwind via a fiery chariot, right? he's bound to have some speculation continue to swirl about him after he's gone. So he's strange in the sense that he, he didn't die, he just sort of disappeared. wonder if he'll come back. Well, the prophet Malachi in chapter 4, says, uh, yeah, he is coming back. Malachi prophesied, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So they're asking, are you Elijah? With the expectation that if he is, that means the end is near. Right? That's what they've been told to understand of Elijah's coming, that the great day of the Lord is upon you. But what's interesting is we get absolutely zero clue here that they think they're not ready for the day of the Lord. Right? We have to assume that by their asking, without then immediately falling on their faces and crying out for mercy, that they think they're ready. They think they're ready for the great and awesome final day of the Lord. They have the expectation of Messiah, but no sensing of their need for Messiah. They also ask, uh, John, are you the prophet? Right? And it's probably not, are you a prophet? But they're asking, are you the prophet? Right? The one Moses mentioned back in Deuteronomy 18. When he said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And buddy, let me tell you, they were eagerly (laughs) awaiting and expecting a prophet because... One of the things they thought this prophet like Moses would do is that he would do something like Moses did. Where Moses freed them from Egyptian oppressors, they desperately wanted the prophet coming to free them from Roman oppressors and occupiers. See, they expected the prophet, the prophet, to bring political and military freedom. And oh, buddy, they were ready for him to come. Are you the prophet? That was the need they sensed, being freed from political and military oppression. No clue, not even on their radar, that the real reason Messiah had to come was that if they had any hope of being ready for that last day, the great and awesome day of the Lord, if they had any hope of being ready for that day, the day of judgment, that they had to be cleansed and changed on the inside. 
Last thing we need to look at is that the Jews really had no idea why John baptized. John the Baptist kept giving the interrogation delegation the runaround, kept telling them who he was not, and they were losing patience with him. And so in verse 22, all right, who are you? We need to give an answer. <laughs> what do you say about yourself? Shoot with a straight man. And I don't think they were probably thoroughly pleased with his answer because it's a somewhat puzzling quote from Isaiah 40 in verse 23. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Oh, thank you. That helps so much. <laughs> Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. See, John the Baptist saw his purpose as making the way straight for Jesus coming. Now, Isaiah, in his context, this was referring to the Jews making their return from exile in Babylon. Right? Make the roads straight. Make the way smooth and easy and quick for the Jews to get out of exile in Babylon back to where they belonged in the promised land. Smooth things out. Flatten out the hills and the valleys. Straighten out the curves. Give them a straight shot to get back home. That's what John saw his God-received purpose as. Remove the obstacles from people's minds and hearts. Make them ready to receive what God was sending in Jesus. John saw his ministry as a ministry of preparation. And the takeaway here is we've got to deal with Jesus on his terms. And if that's going to happen, there's quite a bit of straightening out that needs to occur. <laughs> Three things, particularly in this preparation of leading up to Jesus' arrival. Three things of helping folks understand Jesus' identity, Jesus' purpose, and his worth. As far as identity goes, they had no idea who was coming. And they especially had no idea that he already had come, right? This is one of the things that blows my mind. When you think about John the Baptist, when you think about this part of Scripture, is that Jesus was already there. He'd already been there for 30 years, living his life, doing his thing, going about his carpentry, and he was right under their noses. Verse 26, when this delegation has narrowed down his identity enough to know that he really doesn't seem to have the authority to be doing this baptizing business that he's doing. That's really what they're trying to get at is, whose authority are you doing this with? And they ask him, why are you baptizing? And I love John's answer, right? Because why are you baptizing? He says, I baptize. He still doesn't answer them. He just says, I do it. I baptize with water. And then he gets to the point that really should be the crucial problem for them. See, their big problem is not that they don't understand why he's baptizing. The problem is, is they don't know him who comes after all right, among you stands one you do not 
No, he's here. He is here and you don't know him. And this is going to be a running theme through John's gospel. It would be a running joke if it were funny, but it's not. But we're going to see again and again that an ignorance of who Jesus is, not coming to grips with his identity, is this ongoing problem throughout the gospel. And it's closely linked to not understanding and accepting his purpose in coming. All right, now, I don't want to steal next week's thunder. We stopped at verse 28 for a reason. We'll start next week with verse 29. So I don't want to steal next week's thunder, but suffice it to say that Jesus' purpose in coming is to make people ready for the last day. Right? To affect the internal change that we all need to be ready to face God on judgment day. Right? To have our sins paid for to be given the gift of righteousness, right? Scripture says, without righteousness, no one's seeing God. No one. And so he's coming to give us a gift of righteousness, right? That's Messiah's purpose. He didn't come for any other reason, right? That's it, to be our mediator, to broker peace between us and God by absorbing the wrath that we deserved. But again, that's next week. final piece John the Baptist knows he needs to prepare folks for regarding the coming of Jesus is the worth of Jesus. You know, I think in many ways they expected Messiah would come and serve them. They expected that. They expected Messiah to come and do the dirty work of kicking out the Roman occupiers. Come help us out. We've we've got something we need for you to do for us much like you'd find a hired hand if you needed something done. And you say, come do this thing for me. All right, thank you very much. Off you go. But John knew it wasn't like that. He had no way of knowing that it wasn't like that other than that the Spirit of God impressed it upon his heart. But he knew that Messiah had worth and value like no one he'd ever encountered before. He makes this comment in verse 27, right? Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. But you have to think for a second about what he's doing here, right? Because anything to do with the feet, like untying sandals, foot washing, we'll see later in John's gospel, uh, that was nasty work, right? No one could be forced to do that, forced to do that, except the lowest of the low, right? The lowest slave on the bottom of the slave totem pole. It was as menial of a task as you could find in the first century. And John says, he's not worthy to do even that for Jesus. He's not saying, oh, I'd be willing to do that for Jesus. He's saying, I'm not worthy to do that. I'm not worthy to untie his dirty sandal and come in contact with his feet that have been on these dusty roads. I'm not worthy. So high and exalted is the one who's coming after me. I shouldn't even be in his presence. 
But you see, of course, the, the truth here is that Jesus would come to be a servant. He would come to do something that they desperately needed him to do. He would come to give his life. He would come to humble himself from that high and exalted status. Right? Which, if you know him, if you have dealt with Jesus on his terms, you know that only makes you want to fall on your face before him all the more. It only makes you want to worship. See, if the Jews had any idea of his worth, if you have any idea of his worth, then you wouldn't dare yawn and walk out when he opens his mouth and he begins to speak. You'd cling to every word. You'd fall at his feet. And you'd worship. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you knew people needed to be prepared for the coming of Messiah. You knew people's expectations had to shift. You knew people needed a sense of their need of Messiah. And so you prophesied about and you fulfilled the prophecies of one who would come before. And Lord, I pray that we truly would take these takeaways away with us. That Jesus was coming to do something that no religious activity could ever do. That Jesus came because we've got to be changed on the inside. We need to see Jesus as high and lifted up. as one who has infinite worth and value, that our knees would bow in His presence and that our tongues would confess that He's Lord to Your glory. Holy Spirit, would You come even in these moments and make that a reality? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing in response.